John chapter 13. Before we read our text, you may recall that we had last considered how Judas Iscariot was an imposter. He checked all the right boxes. He walked among believers. He looked the part. He talked the part. But he never placed his faith in Christ alone as his Savior. And I wonder if there's any today who know all the right things to say, know all the right verses, know how to look the part, talk the part, hang out with believers, but Christ has yet to become your Savior. You can get that right today. There's only one time the Bible says you can be saved, and that's today. Today is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And so you can get that right. Don't be a Judas Iscariot. I'll remind you that we are in the context of what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. Chapters 13 through 17 is what is called the upper room discourse between Jesus and his disciples. It's the longest discourse of Christ in the Bible. But it can be misleading to call it the upper room discourse because at the end of chapter 14, they get up and walk outside of the upper room, but it's all grouped together. And where we left off, Judas Iscariot had left on his way to finish his betrayal of Christ. He had already covenanted with the chief priests that he was going to deliver Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. Um, What was already brewing in his heart was now being manifested manifested outwardly. And, And can I tell you that what's in the well will come up in the bucket. It's only a matter of time until who you really are is manifested outwardly. If you're a child of God, it it will show. If you're none of His, it will eventually show. And so who you are will eventually come up in the bucket. For today, let's begin by reading verses 31 through 38. Therefore, when He was gone out, speaking of Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself, and shall straightway glorify Him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another." By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lie down thy, lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow Till thou hast denied me thrice. So now we find the imposter Judas Iscariot has left the room, and having left their midst, Jesus really begins preparing the remaining 11 disciples for what lies ahead. Right after this, Jesus is going to be taken in, um, taken by the hands of sinners. He's going to be given a sham of a trial. He will be scourged and crucified. He will die a sinner's death, and he's going to be buried. And Jesus wants to prepare them for what is about to happen. But aren't you glad that three days later, Christ rose from the dead? 
He came out of the grave alive. He ascended back to his father, having fully satisfied his father's will, being accepted of God, now sits at the right hand of the father. And he has, uh, he is now about to finish all that God had sent him to this earth to accomplish. Uh, it's, it's all going to start happening uh, in, in earnest now as his crucifixion is looming. He wants his disciples to also understand what's going to happen to them. Because not only are they going to lose their earthly leader, but they're going to be, um, they're going to be disheartened. They're going to forsake Christ. They're going to turn their back on the Lord. They're going to go away. They're going to be confused. And so these next several chapters for the disciples, it's critical that they learn from Jesus, the greatest teacher of all, that they learn from him as he instructs them. And just a quick application right here. Jesus takes the time while they are seated around this table to instruct them on spiritual things. On things that are going to be necessary for them and needful for them. And I would just encourage you this morning, use your table time to talk about God. To talk about the things of God. To, to uh, talk to your children about the things of God. Uh, oftentimes, we like to eat around the idol. We call the TV, amen? That's what we call it in our house. Um, and, and we'll eat around that thing. And, uh, but you know what? It'd be a lot better if we just eat at the table. I'm talking about the Brooks here, not y'all. Um, it'd be a lot better if we just eat at the table. And so uh, you can do a lot of good just using your table uh, to talk about Christ. And listen, a church is strengthened through hospitality. We're going to see that at the close of the message, but it's strengthened through hospitality. And, and when you open your home and you open your table up uh, for people to come in and visit with you, uh, what better time to talk about spiritual nourishment when you're having physical nourishment? Amen. So just an encouragement there. That's not the message, but um, I thought it was kind of good. Amen, preacher. That's awesome. Keep preaching. Um, now, right after Jesus' betrayer leaves the table and the room, Jesus tells the remaining 11 in verses 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself, and shall straightway glorify Him. There's a lot of glory going on there, amen? But it's interesting that this is what is said in light of what is now about to unfold. The events which will lead to Jesus' death are now in motion. And he says, now am I glorified. And now is God glorified in me. Now, I believe Jesus was ultimately glorified when he ascended back into heaven. But his glorification actually began with the horrific events surrounding the crucifixion and the crucifixion and his burial. All of that would have to take place before he could ascend to his father. And it's strange that betrayal, sufferings, and death can glorify God. Isn't it? That something so horrific can bring glory to the Father. Because we're out there saying God is so good and He loves us and He takes care of us and He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And yet somebody may look at that and say, then why did that person get killed? Why did that person have to die? Why did they have to suffer? Amen? That bothers a lot of people. I don't understand why so-and-so had to suffer through cancer before God took them home. And so we don't understand sometimes why that would glorify God. It can be strange to our mind. Uh, John the Baptist was beheaded for standing for righteousness, but it glorified God. James was ran through with a sword at the command of Herod, 
for standing for Christ, yet it glorified God. Stephen was stoned to death for preaching Christ, yet it glorified God. Um, And so we see that even Jesus, at the hands of wicked sinners, would glorify God in his death. Hebrews 2 chapter, or Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 say, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But then it says, Crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. There's something about suffering for God that brings him glory. Jesus is our example in all things. I think you would agree with that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 24 say, For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when he be buffeted for or when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? In other words, what, what glory is there if you deserved it? Everybody with me here? Um, But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And you might be portrayed for your faith in Christ. Some of you have experienced that. You may even suffer for your faith in Christ. You might come under fire at your workplace. You might go through some hard times. Listen, you might even be called to die for your faith. But through it all, it brings glory to God. It's acceptable to God. And really what you're doing is you're following in the Lord's footsteps. 1 Peter 3.14 says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. You're blessed. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And so Peter is teaching us it's a blessing if we suffer for righteousness' sake. Listen to this. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. And before I read, let me just go ahead and tell you, if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution what the Bible says. And we're not to look at that as though some strange thing has happened. But I've got to tell you, because so many believers, when they get under fire, they begin to wonder, what in the world? I thought everything was going to be just fine. But the Bible says, don't think it a strange thing. Don't think it's unusual because people don't like you when you stand for Christ. Not everyone's going to rush to you and say, man, can you give me the gospel today? Right? We don't think it a strange thing, but he says, Rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, that ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. And on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And so when we suffer, it glorifies God. And ultimately we want our life 
to bring glory and honor to God. Um, and so if you're going through some trial, if you're being betrayed, if, if you're suffering, if things are going bad, but, but you know you're right with God, you just keep with it. Don't think it a strange thing. Just let it bring glory to God. Amen. It's a blessing to be reproached for the name of Christ. That's what the Bible says. And so we will suffer persecution if we live godly. It's not some strange thing, but you're actually partakers with Christ. That should be exciting. And God is being glorified in your life. I'm sure Jared Decker was not the man who originated this saying, but he's the one I heard it from. And he said this, Christians don't fake Christianity during times of persecution. Maybe I should word it this way. Believers don't fake Christianity in the times of persecution. When the hard times come and persecution arises, it's going to begin to separate those who really love the Lord and those who are just pretending. Persecution. It, it, it was something God used to spread the preaching of His Word in the first century. He used persecution in Jerusalem, number one, to get them out of there because He had prophesied it was going to be destroyed. But number two, so that the gospel could be spread around the known world. And so persecution is a very good thing. The church is usually strengthened during times of persecution. Don't believe me? Read the book of Acts. And so persecution is not a bad thing. Uh, it doesn't mean God's mad at us. Persecution will purge the fakers, though. It will. Persecution reveals who stands for the Savior and who doesn't. Before the crucifixion, the disciples... Uh, are going to forsake, and they're going to flee from Christ. But after they saw the glory of their resurrected Lord, they were willing to die for Him. And in fact, they did. There was something about seeing the resurrected Lord that changed everything. Those who were once running away from uh, standing for Christ are now right in the heat of the battle. Nothing will deter them because they have been with the resurrected Christ. And Paul said, I want to know His sufferings. I want to know the power of His resurrection. And when you know the resurrected Lord and you walk with Him, you will stand for Him. Amen. When you know Christ, when you walk with Him, when you're being conformed into His image... No amount of persecution will turn you away from glorifying your heavenly Father. Jesus set his face like a flint toward Calvary. Nothing was going to deter what God had sent him to do. No amount of betrayal, no amount of persecution, no amount of suffering, no amount of torture was going to stop him from glorifying his heavenly Father. I know that none here are going through what Christ went through. Or even what the first century church went through for that matter. But I also know that some of you are going through some battles. You're going through some great trials right now. Maybe you're being betrayed and you're suffering. I just want you to say, honor Christ. Amen. It'll glorify God. This isn't in my notes, but allow me just to ad-lib for just a moment. I know sometimes as independent Baptists, we give the reformers a hard time, but I thank God for them. The Baptists did not come out of the Catholic Church. We are not Protestants. We never protested what we were never in. Amen. 
But there were two men in particular that immediately jumped in my mind just now that I just want to share with you. And there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe, kind of the forerunner to the Reformation. And he was determined that the world would have an English Bible. And, and so uh, he started translating things into English in the Catholic Church. Man, they hated him. Uh, they excommunicated him. They banned him. And he wasn't welcome. Well, as God would have it, he died a natural death. And uh, as, as history records, he was, an, he was an older man as well. And uh, he died a natural death. And, and after John Wycliffe came a man named John Huss. And John Huss was a man who wanted to carry on the work of John Wycliffe. And he wanted the, the, the commoners to have a Bible in their language, in the English language. And this is why I love the Reformers. Because if it wasn't for the Reformers, we wouldn't have the King James Bible. Ain't got time for all that. And so John Huss, he, he uh, was trying to get the Bible into the common language. He was a, a part of the Catholic Church, and, and, and they decided to excommunicate him. He was no longer welcome. And they hated him so much that when he went on trial, they put a big paper uh, hat on his head, and it said, Leader of the Heretics, as they led him to be burned at the stake. And as they tied him to the stake, and as they were beginning to uh, light that fire, somebody brought some translations from Wycliffe and put them down there as kindling for the fire so that uh, the works of John Wycliffe and John Huss would burn as he was burned alive. And while he was there burning alive, here was a man that understood that in his time of suffering, in his time of betrayal, and in his time of martyrdom, that he would bring honor and glory to God, and he began to sing praise to God. And there as he burned alive, history records that he sang so loud that you could hear him singing until he finally expired, bringing praise to God. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? And the Catholic Church, they were so mad that John Wycliffe didn't die the way that they wanted him to that in 1428, I think it was, Pope Martin V said, you know what would be a good idea? Let's dig him up. They dug him up, they burned his bones, and then cast his bones in the river or the ashes. That's some serious hate. we got a lot to be thankful for when it comes to some of those men. But I'm just simply saying, they, they loved God and they gave testimony to God through their suffering, through their betrayal, through those times of suffering, and yet God was glorified in it all. I don't understand why all that had to happen, but God had a purpose in it. And, and if you'll just stay faithful, even through times of persecution, uh, you can bring honor and glory to God. Don't give up. Stay in the fight. Stay faithful to God. You're going to suffer to some degree, but it'll glorify God. Now in verse 33, notice the tenderness of our Lord. He calls his disciples little children. Isn't that good? He speaks to them as a father. And like newly orphaned, orphaned children, they're going to look for him after he departs. Jesus tells them, you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. For the time being, let's skip verses 34 and 35. But look at verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou, cannot, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Where was Jesus going that they could not follow? Well, three places. He was going to the cross. He was going to the grave. And then he was going back to heaven. And, of course, we expect that it's Peter who asks the questions. Lord, where are you going? Can I, can I go? Whither goest thou? And Jesus says, you can't follow me. But listen to what Jesus says. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. 
And it's a prophecy of what happened to Peter. Peter did follow the Lord. And secular history tells us that he was crucified. He did follow the Lord to crucifixion. Although, according to history, he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord. And so he was crucified upside down. He followed him into death. And of course now... Peter is with the Lord because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so he did follow the Lord Jesus. Verses 37 and 38, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Isn't this an interesting exchange of words here? Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. But it was Peter who needed Jesus to lay down his life for him. It's just interesting to me. And no doubt Peter was sincere. In the other Gospels we read that Peter would never be offended of Christ. That he would never deny Christ. In Luke it says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death for you. But in his moment of crisis he failed. And I do not say that to bring reproach upon Peter. I wouldn't have done any better. But it is a warning for us to be careful what we say in our zeal. Amen. Those who serve in ministry know this very well. Many, oh yeah, I'll be there, I'll be there. Nobody shows. We often say things in our zeal, but in reality we are unable to perform. And it's never wise to make a vow that you don't know whether or not you can keep. Isn't that right? You're better off not to make the vow. That's what the Bible says. Um, Now, I I can tell you that you will not die for Christ until you live for Christ. Amen? You're not going to die for Christ until you live for Christ. In 1860s, uh, Wales was having great revival. And they've had several of those. And missionaries were flocking to parts of India, the rural areas. And and at that time, there were the headhunter tribes who the young men had to collect skulls of of all the men they could and hang them on their wall. And it was an indication of how well they would be able to protect their wives. And, And these missionaries went into these areas knowing that it was dangerous, knowing that their lives were at stake. And they would go in there and they would preach to these tribes, Jesus Christ. And and amongst these headhunters, these very aggressive people, one missionary was successful in, in leading a, uh, a husband, a wife, and his two children to Christ. And, and because of that family, many within the tribe began to give their heart to Christ. But the conversions of these people, it enraged the chief. And so the chief gathered the tribe together and he placed those first converts uh, front and center And he told the father, renounce your faith or I will kill your children. The father said, I have decided to follow Jesus. So the chief had the two children killed right on the spot. Called for him to renounce his faith once again. But the father said, though no one joins me, still I will follow. And the chief said, you renounce your faith. Or I'll kill you. He said, the cross before me, the world behind me. And the man was shot and killed with a dart. 
Peter had that kind of zeal. He says that he's willing to lay down his life for Jesus. But Jesus lets Peter know that Peter will actually deny him three times before this night is over. We'll look at that a bit more next week. But to close out this message, which inadvertently kind of turned into three messages, and that happens sometimes when you go verse by verse. The first mini-sermon being persecutions glorify God, stay faithful. The second little sermonette, our zeal can be misguided if we don't understand who we really are, but our Lord knows us best. Now, for this third and final little thing, I want to go back to verses 34 and 35. It says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So I would just ask you this morning, how is your love for the believers? As Christ loved us, we are to love one another. Christ loved us sacrificially, amen? He gave himself for us. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He not only sacrificed himself in love, but he was patient with his disciples through all of their faults and their slow learning. Let me say that again, because some of you are sleeping. He was... Faithful, Jesus was faithful to his disciples. He was loving to his disciples through all of their faults and all of their slow learning. But people get so frustrated today. Get so frustrated when somebody doesn't come up to a level they think they should be at. And it damages the body of Christ. 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. Oh, here it comes. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is. We sing that on Sunday nights if you have no clue what's going on. And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You say, but they're not lovable. I don't care. Love them. Love them. We're commanded by Christ to love one another. But many have a lot of difficulties with this. Listen to what else John wrote, 1 John 4 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So do you see how important in telling it is whether or not you love the brethren? It says a lot about you. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. (laughs) The Bible says, look, if you don't love your brethren, you're not saved. That's not my words. That's what John wrote. 1 John 3, 18, my little children, let us love in word, or let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, put some action behind What you're saying, if you say you love somebody, 
Are you there for them? Do you help them out? Do you give of yourself to others? Do you give of your time? Are you making sacrifices for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you patient with other believers? Or are you easily ticked off? Are you patient with their shortcomings and their shortfalls? Why is it so telling of our relationship to the Lord? Because the Lord showed us mercy. The Lord was patient with you through your shortcomings and still is. The Lord is patient with you through all of your slow learning. The the Lord loves you and He's long-suffering. He's compassionate. And it's so telling because when we don't do what God did for us, we're showing that we don't really know God. Why should we do any less for other people? But I want you to notice, it's not only important internally, it's important in here, but it's really important outside of here. In verse 35, lets us know that this is important because by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. So it's very important outside of the church house. It's easy to come in here and act like we love one another. Amen. But get home behind a computer screen. Amen. We put a bad example out so often of being a disciple of Christ. We hate, we backbite, we're ugly to one another, we are short-fused, we shoot at our wounded, and it's no wonder that the number one reason people are no longer in church is because they have a testimony that somebody hurt them. I mean, you talk to enough people and that's what you're going to hear. Well, I used to go to church, but this happened to me. And I'm not saying they don't have a legitimate beef. I had somebody come to me once here, and they said, this is why we don't go there anymore. And I said, I don't blame you one bit. I wouldn't come back. I mean, we really do a disservice. And we put out this bad example. Uh, People are visiting this church, and I thank God for that. But you know what's going to cause them to stay? It's how we treat them. It's how we treat them. Do you go out of your way to make visitors feel welcomed? It's how you treat them. Do you make them feel welcomed? And it goes back to the very beginning of the message. Are you using your table time or using time to encourage others and just make them feel a part of the family? It might make a great impact if we would just look around for those who used to be here, call them up and say, hey, you want to come over and have a meal? Take you out for a meal? Amen. We've got to love one another. People respond well to kindness. There's an old saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So what if you can dissect the revelation and you're a jerk? Amen. Even the lost world say things like this. I don't think that's how a Christian is supposed to act. They have an expectation that those who call themselves followers of Christ are to have a more pleasant disposition than others. (laughs) This is why if you're going to get upset at someone, please don't take it to Facebook or social media for all to see and read. What a bad testimony if people from Liberty Baptist Tabernacle are out there bashing one another in front of others. 
Well, it's bad if you do it behind the back of others, but it's really bad in front of others. Be slow to speak. And when in doubt, don't. I think I shared with the men yesterday, Brother Bockhaus gave the, the lesson at men's prayer. And um, I mentioned there at the end how much better it has been that I've learned to sleep on what I want to hit send on. Somebody calls you up, they say something. It's so much better just to wait to the next day. Amen. Let it sink in. Then reread it and realize, I am so glad I didn't send that. Amen. Uh, but I'm telling you, people, they, they go out there on Facebook or whatever else, and they start these stupid debates that have absolutely no purpose so what if your view on this is different than that guy's view on this? So what? Does that mean you got to start hating each other? We're not going to keep everyone. I realize that. People will decide to leave sometimes. But, it, but may it never be said it was because we were unwelcoming or unkind or that they came in here and all they saw was a bunch of people fighting each other. You know what blesses the Lord? Unity. Being of one accord. When you find that in the Bible, you find revival. When you go to the Old Testament and Solomon dedicated the temple, it says that everybody was singing and sounding with one accord. And when that happened, the temple of the Lord was filled so much with the glory of God that they couldn't even stand to minister. And then you get over to the book of Acts, and they were of one accord, they were of one mind, they were daily together and God sends revival and thousands are being saved. God wants us to be unified. Let's not fight amongst each other. Now, what we need to do is show the world that what we have is genuine. It's our love for one another that will truly reveal what our relationship with God is like. And I would ask you as I close today, are you at odds with anybody in here? Somebody in our church that just, man, if you could, you would stick their head in the toilet and flush. <laughs> Is there someone you're mad at within this body? Please get that right. And please do so immediately. I'm not suggesting that I feel there are a bunch of underlying problems and unresolved issues in this church that need to be dealt with. I, I, I don't. I obviously don't know your heart either, but... I'll tell you, I like how this church sticks around and fellowships. Amen. It means a lot to me, Jared. <laughs> well, since everybody got that, I might as well tell you. If you don't know Jared, my wife will say, where are you? And I'll say, I got Ostromed. Um, I lovingly call Jared the black hole. But Jared has so much of the gift of gab. I told Jared, I said, Jared, just keep doing what you're doing. It makes a difference. People stick around because you talk with them. Makes a difference. I was listening to a guy preach. I know I got to finish this. I'm sorry. But I was listening to a guy preach and he said, yeah, there was a movement once in our church where the deacons thought it would be a good idea if we put a sign up when you walk in, take your seat and be quiet. And I can't remember exactly how they worded it, but there was a verse that they pulled from the Old Testament to show the biblical foundation for this. And I agree with what the preacher said. He said, 
the best noise I hear on Sunday is all the voices before and after preaching. It's so special when a church can just hang out together and talk. So keep doing what you're doing. I'm not suggesting we have a bunch of issues here. Um, I like how people don't just rush out the door, but you hang around and talk. I'm the only one that rushes out the door. Well, me and Adam Mitchell, amen, we're gone. Um, But there have been way too many visiting preachers come in here and say, there is a sweet spirit here. And so let's keep that up. But if you're dealing with a lack of love for someone in here, please deal with it. Because what's going to happen is that'll grow into bitterness. And then it's going to end up causing division within the body. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Let's pray.